Hi friends, I'm so grateful for another opportunity for us to study God's Word again today. I pray that as we look into a topic which is really the very foundation of our Christian faith, that God will bless us in a very special way. The gospel means good news. The Greek word is the word euangelion, to bring or announce good news. It's derived from the noun angelos, messenger, and the prefix eu, meaning good. So in classical Greek, an euangelios was one who brought a message of victory or of other political or personal news that caused joy. So, for example, there might be people living in a city who knew that there was an enemy advancing against them, and so they sent out their army who engaged the enemy on a distant battlefield. And one afternoon, a euangelos would come riding into the city to declare the good news that the foreign army had been defeated. The people in that city hadn't done anything. They simply received the good news that something had been done on their behalf. And in the same way, the gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done on our behalf. The gospel is for Christians. We tend to think that the gospel is for yet-to-be believers, that the gospel is something that we have accepted and something that we need to share with our yet-to-be Christian friends and family and neighbours. But this good news is something that we as Christians need again and again. The New Testament writers always spend the first part of their letters reminding their readers of what God has done for them, and then they spend the next part of their letters describing how they are to live in the light of what God has done. And Peter and Paul aren't writing to unbelievers, they're writing to Christians. And in all their letters, they lay out the essence of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us, because the gospel is for Christians. Pastor Eddie Larkman was my pastor in London for a year, and he once said this in one of his sermons. Christians are people of the cross. The cross is our life. It's not only the door to life hereafter, but it's the key to our life now. It is the way to God, and it is the way of godly living. It's where we begin as Christians, but the cross is also where we continue. We must never imagine that growth in the Christian life means starting off at the cross and then somehow moving away from it. We grow as Christians not by moving away from the cross, but by going deeper into the cross. We grow as we become more closely conformed to the cross. The more we understand it, the more we begin to grasp God's heart and mind. The more we pattern our lives on the cross, the more like Jesus we become. So though in one sense we are going back to the cross, there is another very real sense in which we are going forward, because to be at the cross is always to be going forward in Christian living. So won't you join me at the foot of the cross as we look at what Peter tells us about all that took place there? We'll pick up in chapter 2 
and the second part of verse 21. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And this is God's word. In our last sermon, we saw how Peter uses the cross as an example, as a pattern that we are to follow. He speaks to slaves who are being treated unjustly and unfairly, and he holds up the example of Jesus' non-retaliatory, quiet suffering as an example that they are to follow. But Peter cannot leave it there. He can't look at the cross and say only, this is an example for you to follow. When he speaks about the cross, he has to speak about Christ's substitutionary atonement for us. It's so interesting. It's not Peter's main point in this passage. He could simply have stopped with, follow Christ's example. But he can't bring himself to do that, because understanding the cross is so important. That's significant because in our own world today, there are many people, even Christian scholars, who want to belittle the cross. They say, all this talk about Jesus being a sacrifice for us, that's so barbaric. That's like ancient uncivilized pagan religion where you throw a virgin into a volcano to appease the angry gods. Much better to say that Jesus was just a good example for us. Let's put aside and leave unpleasant topics like sin and sacrifice and God's wrath. There was a man back in the 12th century called Peter Abelard who came up with the moral influence theory of the cross. Abelard and his lover Heloise are one of the most famous romantic couples in history, although their tale is a very tragic one. You can look it up on Wikipedia sometime this week. But aside from his romantic troubles, Abelard had troubles with the cross. Peter Abelard suggested that the cross fitted into the category of revelation and not sacrifice. In other words, on the cross, God doesn't actually do anything with our sins. On the cross, God demonstrates his great love for us. The cross is a great display of his love. And when we see that, it moves our hearts to want to repent, and in that way we come to God. The cross is a great example for us. But that just won't do. Someone has used the illustration of a man who is fishing on a pier and who is suddenly swept into the sea. His friend sees him in the water and dives in to rescue him. He manages to get his friend ashore, but in the process he himself drowns. He gives his life to save the life of his friend. But imagine that the fisherman is swept into the sea and his friend sees us and shouts out, Look how much I love you! 
and dives into the sea and drowns without going near the fishermen. Of what use is that? As human beings, we don't need an example. We need a saviour. And that's what Peter points out in these three short verses. One writer has pointed out the irony here because Peter had been the very man who'd once urged Jesus not to go to his death on the cross. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But now Peter understands the necessity of the death of Christ. And in this passage, he explains something of what Jesus' death means for us. Just to say that the cross of Jesus is so foundational and so fundamental and so exalted that we can never truly plunge the depths of it. There's an old hymn called The Love of God, which contains these lyrics. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. So we'll never get to the end of this. We couldn't describe the cross in one sermon, and even Peter's words here are not the last word on the cross. We have to take them along with the rest of Scripture. But there are four important things that Peter tells us in these verses about what the cross means for us as Christians, beyond the fact that it is an example for us. Firstly, Peter says, Christ died for our sins, for you and for me. Verse 21, Christ suffered for you. And verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Christ died for us. I'm sure that when you were a child, or perhaps now as a child or teenager, at some point your parents would have said to you, would you make a cup of coffee for me? Or would you go to the post for me? Or would you go down to the shops for me? And what are they saying? They're saying, if you don't go and do it, I'll have to do it myself. And that's what this little word for means in the passage that we've just looked at. God did for us what otherwise we would have had to do for ourselves. He died for our sins. And when Peter speaks about sin here, he's not speaking about all those little acts of failure and shortcoming which make up our everyday lives. No, those things are simply the symptoms of a much bigger problem. When he speaks of sin, Peter is speaking about a stance of rebellion against God, against God's love and God's authority and God's presence. We have offended God. It's relational. And it's no use you or I saying, well, I'm better than him. I'm better than her. I'm not as bad as Hitler. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's like at school, 
if the pass mark for an exam is 50% and I get 49% and you only get 13%, it doesn't really matter because we've both failed. You and I have fallen short of God's glory. And we deserve death, not merely physical death, but a permanent separation from the God whom we have offended. And there is nothing that we can do about our sin. And so what we couldn't do for ourselves, God has done for us. Peter says that Jesus bore our sins. If you've ever offended someone, or if you've ever been offended by someone, you will know that that offence creates a burden, a weight of guilt or remorse that needs to be taken away. And until it has been taken away, there is something that lies between the two people in that relationship. Someone has to carry the burden away. Either I have to forgive the other person and overlook the offence, or the other person has to apologise and ask for forgiveness. But someone has to carry the burden away. On the cross, Jesus took the weight of our sin and he carried it away. Remember that Peter is a Jewish man who would have been well acquainted with this idea of sin being born or carried. Every year, on one very special day in Israel, the holiest day of the year, the Day of Atonement, a sacrifice would be made for the sin of the entire nation. You can have a look at Leviticus chapter 16 that describes all of the regulations for that day, there were a lot of things that took place on the day, but one of the most significant things was this. The Israelites would bring two goats to the high priest, and he would draw lots for the goats. One goat would be the lot of the Lord, and the other would be the scapegoat. The lot of the Lord would be sacrificed, and its blood would be sprinkled on the atonement cover on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place to cover not completely wipe out, but to cover the sin of the Israelites. Then the high priest would take the second goat, the scapegoat, and he would place his hands on it and he would confess all the sins of the Israelites over this goat. And then a young man would take this goat and in front of everyone he would lead it out into the desert, far, far away, where it would be left to die. It was a dramatic demonstration to the people of Israel that their sin had been borne away. The book of Leviticus specifically says the goat will carry on itself all their sins. But that action, as dramatic and meaningful as it was, was always incomplete because there was one thing that was missing in that sacrifice and that was the aspect of will. The goats and the bulls and the other sacrifices didn't have a choice. Only a person really could die in place of another person. And only a sinless person could die for the sin of another person. Otherwise he would be dying for his own sin. Do you notice then what Peter says here? He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Matthew tells us that at Jesus' trial, 
the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. On one occasion, Jesus asked his enemies, Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? That's quite a question. I wouldn't want to ask that question of my wife, let alone my enemy. But Jesus can ask it of his enemies, and they cannot answer him. It's very clear, then, that Jesus isn't up on that cross for anything he has done. Rather, he is dying for what we have done. You may be aware that Peter quotes extensively from Isaiah 53 in these verses, which describes the suffering of God's Messiah several hundred years before the event. Isaiah says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. There's another aspect to what Peter says here as well. Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Peter doesn't use the normal Greek word for cross, as some of our newer translations translate the word. He actually refers to the cross as a tree, and he's doing that very deliberately. In the Old Testament, if you were put to death for a crime, your body could be hung up on a tree or on a wooden stake. It was a mark of shame, and that gruesome sight would then serve as a warning to others of the results of breaking those laws which were punishable by death. But the law said this in Deuteronomy 21, If a man guilty of a capital offence is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day, because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So this law doesn't command that the body of a criminal be hung up on a tree. That was probably a very ancient practice. What this law does, in fact, is to limit that practice. The body had to be removed from the tree or wooden post at sunset, and then it was to be buried. To have left the body hanging there would have been to pollute the land, not only literally through the decay of the body in a warm climate, but symbolically because the land belonged to God and would be given to Israel by him. And the law points out that a body hung on a tree is under God's curse. The biblical scholar Peter Craigie explains what this means. The body was not accursed of God because it was hanging on a tree. It was hanging on a tree because it was accursed of God. And the body was not accursed of God simply because it was dead, for all men die, but it was accursed because of the reason for the death. To break the law of God and live as though God did not matter or exist was in effect to curse God, and he who cursed God would be accursed of God. 
And Peter says here then that Jesus didn't just bear our sin, but that in bearing our sin, he also bore God's curse on those who break his law. The Apostle Paul elaborates on this in the book of Galatians, where he says, All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Now, this would have been utterly scandalous to the people of Peter's time, but Peter isn't ashamed to mention it. In fact, he specifically calls attention to the fact that Jesus died on a tree. He does it in the book of Acts, when he and the other disciples are called in front of the Sanhedrin and told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. He says on that occasion, The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. Do you see the enormity of what Jesus did for us on the cross then? He took our sin and bore our shame. John White is a Christian doctor and writer, and in one of his books he writes this. As a medical student, I once missed a practical class on sexually transmitted diseases. Because of this, I had to go to the venereal diseases clinic alone one night at a time when students didn't usually attend to meet with one of the professors. As I entered the building, a male nurse I did not know met me. A line of men were waiting for treatment. I want to see the doctor, I said. That's what everybody wants. Stand in the line, he replied. But you don't understand. I'm a medical student, I protested. Makes no difference. You got it the same way everybody else did. Stand in the line, the male nurse repeated. In the end, I managed to explain to him why I was there but I can still feel the sense of shame that made me balk at standing in line with men who had VD. And John White goes on to say, Yet Jesus shunned shame as he waited to be baptized and as he hung on the cross. And the moral gulf that separated him from us was far greater than that separating me from the men at the clinic. Moreover, my dislike of venereal disease was as nothing compared with Jesus' utter abhorrence of sin. But he crossed the gulf, joined our ranks, embraced us, and still remained pure. He identified with those he came to save. He became like us. Jesus willingly bore our sin and shame and also the wrath of God. Just to mention in passing that it's not as if God takes out his wrath on his innocent son instead of us. Both father and son together are involved in dealing with our sin. There are only two parties reconciled at the cross, us and God. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We mustn't make too great a distinction between God and Christ. Jesus is our willing sacrifice. He willingly takes my sin and yours. He willingly identifies with our sad and sorry human state. He died for us. Secondly, 
Christ died to renew our lives. Verse 24, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. There are only two ways in which we can try and become righteous, right with God. We can either try and do it ourselves, or we can rely on Jesus' sacrifice. We saw a moment ago in the book of Galatians that trying to obey a whole lot of rules is impossible, and that if we break just one of God's laws, we are under God's curse, because we have failed to obey God's whole law. Paul writes about this in more detail in Romans chapter 3, where he says, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The law acts as a mirror to show us that we can't live up to God's standards and that we fall short of his glory. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So we don't become right with God through our good deeds, but rather through Jesus' death for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus lives the life I should have lived and dies the death I should have died, and then he attributes that good life to me. I'm declared to be righteous in his sight. And when I accept what Jesus has done for me, that gives me the freedom and the power to live a new life, not in order to be made right with God, that has all been done for me, but simply out of gratitude and love and out of a relationship with him. I've used this illustration before, and it's not a perfect one because it relies on outdated male and female stereotypes. But the story is told of a woman who was married to a horrible man. He expected his wife to be his servant. He had exact rules about how she should look when he got home from work, what the house should look like, what they should eat and how it should be prepared, how his shirt should be ironed. He even drew up lists of rules and left them around the house for her to follow. This lady endured ten long years of a very miserable marriage, and then unexpectedly and I suppose in a sense happily, her husband died. A few years later, this lady was fortunate enough to marry another man who was the exact opposite of her first husband. He treated her like a queen. He brought her flowers every Friday. He encouraged her to take a part-time job of her own. He always complimented her and thanked her and praised her to his friends. He felt he was the luckiest man alive. After about two years of this marriage, one afternoon this lady was cleaning out one of her bedroom drawers and she came across one of the dreadful lists of rules that her first husband had drawn up for her. And as she read through the rules, this lady suddenly realized that she was doing all the same things for her second husband. But oh, the difference. She was doing them out of love and joy and in response to his own deep love for her. 
The analogy is by no means perfect, but I hope it makes the point that there is all the difference in the world between trying to live a righteous life to make ourselves acceptable to God and living out the righteousness that God already declares us to have out of a loving relationship with him. Thirdly, Christ died to heal our wounds. Verse 24, by his wounds you have been healed. Peter had seen the hands of Jesus bring healing to his own mother-in-law and to many others in Israel too. But now Peter speaks not about the hands of Jesus, but the wounds of Jesus that bring us healing. What does Peter mean here? I'm now going to take off my socks and shoes and gently tiptoe through a minefield. This is my understanding at present, and I'm happy to be corrected. I think it's possible to use this verse almost as a spiritual band-aid to stick across any disease and claim God's healing. But that isn't quite Peter's point here. Peter is quoting Isaiah 53, and again, to understand Peter's use of this phrase, you have to look at the phrase before it and the phrase after it. Firstly, the phrase after it. Peter uses the little word for to link these two phrases. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but you've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The second phrase explains the first one. Peter is primarily speaking about a healed relationship, how Christ's wounds and the punishment that he bore have brought us back to God. And secondly, the phrase before this, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness, by his wounds you have been healed. As we've seen on the cross, Jesus bore away my sins in order that I might die to sin and live a life that is characterized by righteousness. However, I don't experience the fullness of that right now. My sin is forgiven and I'm growing in grace so that some of the sins I used to commit no longer trip me up as much as they used to. Old attitudes are changing but I won't be totally free from sin and completely righteous in all I do until I'm dead. <laughs> Sorry, you're just going to have to be patient with me for a bit longer. The story is told of how two students were having a debate with the reformer Martin Luther. One of the students was suggesting that it was perfectly possible to attain sinless perfection in this life. He believed it emphatically. In fact, he believed that he himself had reached the stage of sinless perfection. Instead of arguing with him, Martin Luther simply took the milk jug that was on the table and emptied it over the man's head. The man's angry outburst showed immediately that whatever he may have believed, he certainly had not reached sinless perfection. I so look forward to the day when I can speak without sinning, trying to make myself look good, failing to listen properly because I'm thinking about something else. When I can think without sinning, all those conversations in my head where I'm the winner of the argument, all those imaginings of fickle fame and fortune. When I can act without sin, doing good purely out of love, without thinking about how my actions appear to others. When I can worship God without sin, 
without the thought, look at how holy I am, worshipping God. One day, Jesus' death for my sin on the cross will be finally completed and perfected. As the Apostle John puts it, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. But today is not that day. There is an already and a not yet when it comes to dying to sin and living for righteousness. And there is an already and a not yet when it comes to healing. And how that all works, I have no idea. I do know that we can make two equal and opposite errors, though. As one writer puts it, to have no theology of the power of the gospel now would be to relegate virtually all kingdom blessings to the future return of Jesus. On the other hand, to place too much emphasis on the transforming power of the kingdom totally divorced from other competing and qualifying themes in scripture is to depreciate what we are still waiting for, what the entire created order still groans for, that is our final redemption. The church will probably always remain in tension over how much power and how much weakness should characterize her until the consummation of all things. Every blessing that comes to us now and in the hereafter ultimately flows from the redemptive work of Christ, that total healing of the body with total sinless perfection, that entire personal renewal in Christ's image flows from the cross. The issue is what blessings we have a right to expect as universally given endowments right now, what blessings we may expect only hereafter, and what blessings we may partially or occasionally enjoy now and in fullness only in the hereafter. We've become a little sidetracked here. If that's what Peter doesn't mean, what does he mean? Well, again, taking all three phrases together, Peter is saying that Jesus' death heals our relationship with God and allows us to die to sin and live for righteousness. Remember that Peter is writing to slaves who've been treated unjustly and who have received a beating, a whipping, for doing good. The word Peter uses here for wounds, by his wounds we've been healed, is a Greek word that refers to the bruise or stripe or gash that a whipping makes on someone's back. Jesus had been tied to a post on the pavement of the palace where Pilate administered justice. There he'd been whipped with the Roman scourge, a lash with multiple thongs weighted with lumps of lead or bone. How did Christ's wounds bring healing to slaves who'd also felt the lash? Peter is saying that Jesus' wounds saved them from a far greater punishment than any their earthly master could give. Jesus' wounds save us from receiving God's wounds. And more than that, Jesus experienced the same lashes that these slaves have experienced and like them, he too suffered unjustly. And so Jesus' wounds bring them healing in that they have the courage and the strength to endure unjust suffering for his sake. Their punishment is not just meaningless suffering. It's elevated to sharing in the sufferings of Christ. 
Jesus' wounds heal us in that they put us in a right relationship with God, which then enables us to endure an unfair beating without retaliation and sin and insult, as we saw last time. Fourthly, Christ died to restore our relationship to God. Verse 25. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter is again picking up on Isaiah 53. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You will know that this picture of a shepherd has a very rich history in the Old Testament. It's an image that is used of God. The first place we come across it is in the book of Genesis, where Jacob, also called Israel, is on his deathbed and is blessing Joseph's two sons. On that occasion, he says, May the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, may he bless these boys. David famously prays in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. But then in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah takes this picture of the suffering servant that we get in Isaiah 53 and the picture of God as a shepherd that we get in Psalm 23 and he puts them together and he prophesies, Awake, sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Peter would have remembered that passage because Jesus had quoted it as they were on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus warned his disciples that all of them would scatter when he, the shepherd, was struck. Peter had boldly declared, Even if all fall away, I will not. And yet, just a few hours later, he'd sworn three times, even with an oath, that he didn't know Jesus, and afterwards had cried bitter tears of regret. But oh, the joy of that Resurrection Sunday when Jesus had appeared to Peter and that beautiful scene in John 21 where Jesus gently restores Peter. Peter had known personally the joy of returning to the shepherd and overseer of his soul. And now Peter wants the same for us, for us to return to the shepherd The shepherd whom Jesus describes in Luke 15 as leaving the 99 sheep in the fold and going out into the danger and darkness to find the one sheep who had wandered away. The shepherd whom Jesus himself describes as being good. I am the good shepherd, he says in John chapter 10. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. We've looked at an awful lot this morning, but again we've only just scratched the surface. We'll spend an eternity contemplating and marveling and worshipping God for the cross. As another writer him puts it, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? If you receive a wedding invitation, at the bottom of the invitation you'll find four little letters. 
RSVP. Pastor John Stott tells the story of how one German immigrant family in their congregation was once invited to a wedding by a fellow congregation member, and it was the first English wedding invitation they'd ever received. The German father couldn't quite figure out what these four little letters meant, and after puzzling over it for quite some time, he said to his wife, I have it. It means, remember to send wedding present. The letters aren't English, they're French. Respondez, s'il vous plaît, meaning, please respond. And that is the call to us today. When you respond to a wedding invitation, you don't have to bring your own food. You don't have to pay your own way or help with the catering. Everything is prepared for you. You simply have to say yes. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul that we read a little earlier. A righteousness, a right with Godness, which is from God and comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Have you said yes to all that Jesus has done for you? And if you have, let's just think again of all that that means to us. And let's respond with fresh wonder, love and praise. Amen.